In this morning's gospel reading, Jesus is talking about money. Um, this has always been a dreaded subject for me to address as a pastor, uh, probably because of the caricature that exists in the culture that the church is always after people's money. It's what kept me out of ministry for a number of years as a young man. I felt a calling into ministry when I was a kid, but I uh, sort of resisted. I'd put it off. I ended up uh, moving into professional photography for a while, and then I shifted and started going to nursing school. My, my goal was I was always committed to ministry. I was always committed to caring for the church, but I wanted to do ministry without having to take up offerings. And I, and I didn't want to have to take a salary. And uh, there was something in me that just didn't want to go there. And even to this day, though I've been in ministry for over 40 years, I, I, I don't like talking about money. That's why I seldom do the offering, right? Let somebody else have that joy. Uh, so though I do not treasure discussing this subject with you, the lectionary has foisted it upon me. And, uh, and I will comply, you know. We go by the lectionary for the most part in our community, which forces preachers to not just do their favorite preaching, but to address issues that are in the full counsel of God. And, and one of the ways that we want to honor the church and honor the, church, the church's history is by submitting to the way in which the church said, talk about these texts. So I do have some thoughts about money and some personal stories to tell, and then we won't have to talk about it again for a while. Um, it was really a shocker for Gail and I to discover in our 20s that the Bible really does promise that God will help us in the area of our financial lives, that he will help us with our financial provision. I really didn't know that. I mean, actually, before this discovery, I, I would take offense when people talked about trusting God for financial or material needs. I, um, I just thought they were being selfish. And I assumed that, you know, we don't have the right to pray about anything but spiritual things. And if we don't have a lot of physical things, we just suffer, and it's fine. I mean, that's God's matter, and God knows what we need before we ask him. So we should really leave the whole enterprise of provision and the enterprise of money in the hands of God. I mean, that was my position. And because as young people, you know, we were, we were really just so committed to Christ, we kind of thought we were supposed to suffer just a little. Right? Anyway, <laughs> But then, as you read... Read the Bible, which we started doing with a little more intent. It became apparent. It, it shows you that God really does want us to actively trust him in every part of our lives, not just the spiritual places. And uh, when you watch and listen to Jesus, it's obvious that, that he sees the earth as God's providence. It's, it's, it's his place where he loves to jump into our earthly stuff. Um, the famous text from Jesus puts this idea on parade. This is Matthew 6, where Jesus says, Therefore, I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you're going to eat or drink or about your body, what you'll wear. He said, Is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? He says, Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life? And why do you worry about your clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow. They don't 
labor or spin, yet I tell you that not even Solomon, who's the great rich king of the Old Testament, in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If God is, if that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you of you of little faith? I mean, he actually connects little faith with not being able to believe that God actually helps us in physical ways. He says, so stop worrying about what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? The pagans run after those things, but your heavenly father knows you need them. But seek first God's kingdom and God's righteousness, in other words, doing things rightly, not just spiritually, but in the way you conduct your affairs with money and work and all those kinds of rightness and all the stuff that people have to run after because they're afraid will simply be given to you as well. Catherine Marshall, one of my favorite authors, she's passed now, but she writes it's such a beautiful quote here. She says, quote, if we are to believe Jesus, his father, and our father is the God of all life, and his caring and provision include a sheep herder's lost lamb, a falling sparrow, a sick child, the hunger pangs of a crowd of 4,000, the need for wine at a wedding feast, and the plight of professional fishermen who toiled all night and caught nothing. These vignettes scattered through the Gospels are like little patches of gold dust. Say to us, no creaturely need is outside the scope or range of prayer. End quote. In other words, God cares about more than our spiritual needs. (laughs) The first time Gil and I ever really specifically prayed for a financial thingy, a financial blessing from God, was, uh, it was inspired by a couple of our friends who lived in St. Louis, and they, they were in an area where they couldn't find a house at the value of what they could afford. And so they began to pray, Lord, would you give us a house? And they named an amount and you know because it's what they could afford, and they wanted to be faithful to live within their means. But they were asking God to somehow make something possible. And so they're calling us and telling us how they were praying about it, which sort of made me mad. I mean, it was still in my time saying, well, brother, you know, just trust the Lord to just take care of all that. Don't talk about that. Don't pray about that. Well, anyway, they ended up getting a house exactly for what they prayed for. And I found myself a little surprised and very jealous. And so I told Gil, I said, honey, Bruce and Claudia, I mean, they, they prayed for a house. I mean, we're sitting in this little apartment. We called it the... Uh, the palace. It was $80 a month. It had slanted walls in a middle. You know, we're in Wisconsin. It's freezing and it had one space heater in the middle of the five rooms or whatever. And Gil would be over there every morning, you know. <laughs> anyway, warming up. But um, it, it wasn't a beautiful place. We paid 80 bucks a month. This was back in the 70s, right? 77, probably 76. And, um, and so we sat down after we saw that. And we said, you know, we had been looking in the newspaper and there was never a house that was under 250 or 300. And um, so we looked at our, our ability of what we could afford with what we were making to be faithful, to spend not, not more than we had. And uh, the most we figured out we could do was $125. So we said, okay, let's pray. So we joined hands and said, Father, we're asking you to get us a house for $125. <laughs> and uh, so we prayed. And then for the next four or five days, I keep looking at the paper. Nothing, nothing. And then about the fourth day, this house... $125 appeared in the, in the thing, and I'm going, oh, you know, it's our house, Kelly. So we went over there, and 
It was the cutest little house, and we kind of did a, what did they call those? Jericho March. <laughs> if you don't know that what that was, that's a good thing, or you'd be in therapy. But um, <laughs> So we did our Jericho March around that thing, and, and uh, we went over to the lady's house. What was her name, baby? It was Aligny, Mrs. Yeah, Mrs. Aligny. And uh, we, we come into her house, and we said to her, you know, we saw your paper, I mean, saw your ad in the paper, and we would so love your house. Well, while we were sitting there, somebody else called who was a, an older gentleman who actually was a, a, a professor at the local um, university that was there. And he said, he said, I'll give you, let me go ahead and give you 185 for the house. I just, and, and so she goes, oh, that much. <laughs> you know, just, we're hearing her in the other room. And I said, oh, honey, I said, oh, Lord. You know, I said, we think this is our house. And then all of a sudden she goes, she goes, oh, you know, this lovely young couple here, I'm just going to give it to them. And she hung up, right? It's, it's hard to describe the potpourri of feelings we had. Um, we were elated and yet humbled. We felt loved, cared for. We felt a little undone, broken by the fact that it appeared that Almighty God cared about something so domestic, so common. This wasn't a missionary house. I mean, this wasn't... Uh, a home for wayward teens. This, this is where Ed and Gail Gunger were going to live. And God made it so. And we had enough sense to realize that this answered prayer wasn't proof of our spirituality or some kind of badge of maturity. It was just a simple God story. And we felt kissed. It was our first provision kiss from God. <laughs> And when you see God provide for you, it impacts you spiritually. The Bible says one spiritual result of God's supernatural provision for us is joy. And we had joy. But there's more. We, we felt his love, his embrace. It bred in us a hope for the future. That, that we would be able to do what God called us to do. Because the one who called us would provide for us. It changed the way we thought. God's provision fostered wonder and awe in us. This is the wonderful side of money. Over the years that have followed and to this day, we, we have had a lot of provision story after provision story. Um, when I felt that God wanted me to go to Bible school in 1978, a couple weeks ago, um, we had $360 or $380, something like that, to our name. And uh, no promise of a job. And Gail and I headed down to Tulsa to go to Raymond Bob Training Center. And uh, <laughs> we, we ended up getting here. We didn't really have much. And we got a couple of menial jobs, but it wasn't enough to cover everything. And uh, we did our best, but we needed more than our best. And so we began to pray. And we started seeing little miracle after little miracle when we pray. It was, it was magical, really. Uh, at one point, <laughs> let me tell you a couple of them. At one point, early in that first year, um, you know, every once in a while we'd have people send us money. And, and Gail looked at me and she said, Honey, I really need some new clothes. I said, Yeah, I do too. But we didn't want to get money and, and spend it on clothes because when you get money in your hand, it's so tempting to pay the electric bill. And so we actually prayed for clothes. And all of a sudden, people started sending us clothes in the mail. <laughs> it's like we're going, Hot diggity dog Jesus, man. <laughs> so 
so sweet. Then we would pray. We'd look in our lives and say, where we, there was another couple that had owed us money for a couple of years. And so I wanted to call them because we could use the money. We're in school. And we just decided, let's just pray for them. Let's pray for God to prosper them. Let's pray for God to bless them. And, uh, and, and that somehow they'll be able to pay us without us hounding them at all. And after a couple of weeks, out of the blue, we hadn't heard from them in a long time. They, they, I think it was a letter they wrote to us, and it had $20 in it or whatever it was, which was started. There was a few hundred. But they said, we feel in our hearts convicted that we haven't paid this, and we're going to start doing it. And over a short period of time, they ended up paying us. And every time we got that, we didn't feel like, well, I'm glad they finally did what was right. We felt like, Lord, thank you for blessing them and for helping this work out without us fighting, right? Um, one other one, we were uh, at around Christmas time that year, and, you know, you just don't have extra money for Christmas. And um, uh, I was, uh, we were praying about, Lord, I'd love to get some extra money somehow that's outside of our budget so I can get Gail something, we get something, we, you know, just, you're in love, you're young, and I want stuff. So anyway, I'm praying about it, and then I, I, we had just prayed about it, and I walked out, and, and I was in this parking lot, the public parking lot, and just as I'm walking to my car, I hear this guy say, man, I don't know, we're looking for someone to help us just for a couple of weeks before Christmas. And I heard him, I said, I'm your guy. <laughs> All those things to me. I don't know how to say it other than just, you, you, it, it's just remarkable strengthening, changing our thinking about things. Then, then I got a business idea and ended up providing enough money for us that we sailed through the rest of Bible school without the need for any special miracles. Um, and I think the best financial miracle is not needing them. Right? I mean, that, that it's a miracle of, of hitting stability. Remember the promised land, when they got there, all the miracles stopped. You know, the fire by night and the cloud by day and the shoes not wearing out and the man on the ground, all that stopped when they got to another place. It's good to get to a place where you don't need all kinds of things. Um, most of God's help in our lives um, has been stability for most of our lives. But there have been seasons where stability eluded us. And we had to go back to needing financial miracles. And God was faithful. God is faithful. Gil and I believe this stuff to our core. We believe God provides. And this is such good news to the poor. That being said, there is a very important caveat to this whole business of money. When the Bible talks about money, it shows us that money can be wonderful, but it also tells us that it can be deadly to the soul. The warnings given about, the, about money in the Bible are more than some of the promises about it being good. You have texts like Luke 12, watch out, Jesus said. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed as the wanting of more. A man's life or a person's life does not consist in the abundance of the person's possessions. This is a trap people get into. They think that we're here to get, right? It's one of the reasons we do Eucharist every week because Eucharist isn't about getting, it's about receiving and how they're receiving. There's uh, Orthodox theologians that talk about what the origin of sin was as God had something in the garden that was not given. And so they took it. And it was in the taking of what was not given that is at the heart of what sin is. So you can understand how this impulse to want to get is really the heart of sin. 
Jesus warned about how increase can damage and ruin and cause one to actually forfeit their soul. He says in Mark 8, what good is it for a person to gain the whole world, to grab it, and yet forfeit his soul? First Timothy warns too, Paul writes, people who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that can plunge people smack into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and have pierced themselves with many griefs. We need to be honest with ourselves and ask the question, do I love money? Am I after stuff? If you are, the Bible claims that it is the root of all kinds of evil. And no one here wants all kinds of evil. The the problem is money carries power. And and like anything that is powerful, it's dangerous. Whether you're talking about political power, that can be used to help or to hurt people, right? Monetary power is no different. It can bring good or it can bring all kinds of evil. We shouldn't avoid powerful things because there is a potential for evil, but we should, be, should, we should not pretend that there is not the potential for evil, right? There is a potential for it. In our gospel text today, Jesus claimed, no servant can serve two masters, Either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. And he says, you cannot serve both God and wealth or God and money. Jesus is saying that there's something about money. There's something about wealth that competes for human devotion. Devotion that should only be given to God. And there's something about money that that attributes to people some sense of being more important than it should. What happens to people who are not careful is that they end up serving money the way they should only serve God because money makes its owner feel a sense of being a God, actually. For example, people with money feel as though they can do anything they want. And the more money they have, the more they feel like that. So they feel a tad omnipotent which is really a God trait. Money also gives people a sense of of omnipresence because they have enough money that they can believe they can go anywhere, anytime, be where they want to be, anytime. That sense of omnipresence, a God trait. People with money often come to believe that they know everything and are smarter than everyone around them because they have money. It proves that they are which is the rumor of divine omniscience, all-knowing, another God trait. See, unless you're on your guard, money can make you seem bigger, better, more than others, like a God. So if you are a God, why would you need God? Again, Jesus said money competes with God because it makes you feel like one. This is why he said in Luke 6, woe to you who are rich. (laughs) Uh, I don't think he's saying it's bad to be rich. 
I just think he was saying, there's got some woe in it. <laughs> you ought to be watchful, man. It'd be like if you told me you lived inside a nuclear power plant or something like that. I'd go, I'd go whoa, <laughs> there's lots of dangerous places and power in there. And I tell you to be careful. That's all Jesus is saying. Don't think money is neutral. It is not neutral. It is a power that will vie for your affection your decision-making, and your heart. So though there's danger in the arena of money, God still wants to help you financially. That's sweet. And his help comes in two ways. One is what I described, flat-out miracles. The other way is through wisdom and strength for living well. Right? So wisdom looks like don't spend more money than you make. Ta-da! Strength looks like you have the strength to refuse to spend more money than you make because it's tempting to do that, right? Living well also means not being wasters. Our fella in the gospel story was getting fired because he was a waster. Living well means you don't cheat other people. Living well means you don't charge more for things than what they're worth. Living well means you pay your bills. And sometimes... Flat-out miracles and living well meet each other in a miracle, right? One of my sweetest examples to me was when I was in, in college. This is before Gail and I were married. I lived in a house with two other guys, and they were great guys. And I moved out in January, and they ended up staying in the house till May. Well, the heating, this is in Wisconsin, so heating bills are really high. Um, the heating was in my name. They left, got out of the house. All of a sudden, somewhere in July, maybe August, I get this letter that says that a creditor or some, uh, what do they call those guys that chase after your money? Yeah, collecting agency was trying to collect this bill from me. And it was like, this was back in 73, $470. Dude, that was a lot of money back then. Um, and I get the bill, and I know it's not mine, so I chase the guys down. I say, guys, you have to pay this bill. I was out of the house. They go, oh, I don't know. I, I get what I was supposed to get. Nobody budged. So it was with uh, Baltus Oil Company. So I, I found, is in Marshfield, Wisconsin. So I went down to the Baltus Oil Company, and I walked in, and I said, could I talk to a manager? And, and it was actually Mr. Baltus. So I walked in, and I said, sir, and I had the, the letter with me. I said, I just want you to know this wasn't, this wasn't my bill. And he immediately got all ruffled, you know, and angry. I said, no, no, don't misunderstand me. I, I'm going to pay it. I'm just asking you if you would be patient with me. And for the next, oh, probably took, us, took me four months, maybe. I'd bring in $25, $15, $30, and over a period of time, I paid that off, right? So years passed, and we ended up pastoring in this little town of Marshfield, Wisconsin. And I'm asking them for a loan for a church building we're going to build. I'm asking them for $500,000, and I'm 29 years old. The banker laughed at me. I mean, he said, listen, he said, we just had the Lutheran church. It's been here for 100 years. He said, just got a loan for a building. And, and they had to take every person in the church as part of it had to you know, sign up and co-sign for 15,000, 15,000, so they get their money. There's no way the, the board's going to give you the thing. And I looked at the bank and said, no, I, I think they will. I just, you just need to ask them. So he kind of huffed at me a little bit. And uh, then he calls me. He said, are you around today? I said, yeah. He said, why don't you come down to the bank? So I come down to the bank, 
And he takes me up to the boardroom. I mean, this, I've never heard of anything like this. Have you? I'm going into the boardroom where the decision makers are about this $500,000 to this 29-year-old punk kid that thought he ruled the world. So I, I walked in there, and as I walked in there, I sat down, and I look across, and you know who's sitting there? Mr. Baltus. <laughs> Mr. Baltus looked at the whole board. He owned the bank pretty much. He owned like 80% of the whatever it was. He pretty much owned the bank. So he sat there, and he said, he said listen. He said, I know this guy's young. He said, I understand that. This is a little unusual. He said, but I want to tell you something. This young man paid a bill he didn't really owe. And he said, if we're giving any man money, I'm going to give money to this guy because he's going to pay us back. And we got the loan. So, so I think that's favor of God and being honest. I think that some of these merge into each other. And, and I, my encouragement to you would be that you learn to live well and trust God. That you do things like working on your job, not just because you're, for, for the kind of, you're giving the effort you think you should for the money you're being paid. That maybe you think you're being paid, you should be paid more so you work a little less. That you don't hold back and do that. Living well means you don't calculate your buying power by the minimum payment you'll have to make on the credit card to buy that. All right, the last thing I want to say about money is this. Last thing I want to say is this. The best way to ensure you stay clean from the dark side of money is live to give. Giving has a way of just absolutely crushing greed. It, 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 it causes you to face the fear of lack. Give to more than just others, you need to give to your family. Be a provider. There's a text in First Timothy that says, if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially his immediate family, he has denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. God wants you to bless your family, bless your kids. In this day and age, because of the fact that so many things are out of your control, you may not be hitting on all cylinders here, so don't be condemned by this. But in your heart, you should always be striving for this. When we were Building churches, we built three church plants. Gil and I have. We, we always need money. Always needed money. We need money now. <laughs> um, and I tell the church, please help us if you can. Uh, but not with all you have. I remember one particular season. We were in this growth season. And I was asking people to step up, and uh, I stood up in the church and I said, "Listen, I said you all know that we need finances right now. But I just want you to know, I have two thousand dollars." right now that I, the church could really use, but I'm going to spend it next week on my family because we need a few days together away from all of you. And then I'll give more to the church later. <laughs> so I, I, we've always tried to model, you don't just give to, out, to things outside. You need to ask the question, what do my kids need? What does my family need? What do I need? Right? And take care of yourself as well. Give to your future. Save as much as you can for your retirement. A little money goes a long way over time, right? So there's a text in Proverbs that says, he who gathers money little by little makes it grow. Do it. Don't do it because it's wise. Do it because it's righteous. It's godly. It's how God wants to provide for you. And then there's the giving to others. The church. Many of you are tithers. Tithing is... 
basically 10% of your income, but even if you just do two, whatever you do, just be consistent in your giving. There's something wonderful about that. Offerings you can give to, special projects, um, those are all wonderful things. Giving to the poor, whatever lifts people, whether you're the, from everything from building wells to the Red Cross to Salvation Army to some gal on the street, you know, that's, that's in poor and poverty, whatever, people on the street. Um, these are all ways that we give, gospel giving. This is uh, giving that the New Testament talks about, that you're doing something significant because you want to change the world. It could be you deciding to be a missionary, right? And you're giving up a career and you're going over to a foreign place. You give up this huge capacity for making money you give to be able to serve the church. Um, or you may, may be giving some extra because you believe that what's going to happen is going to be a significant shift in the kingdom of God. Like if we did church plants, where you're saying, oh, you know, honey, we were going to buy that car. Let's, not, let's wait another couple of years and not, and let's give that chunk we saved to this project. That's called gospel giving. We're giving about lands and whatever, uh, the idea that you're promoting the kingdom of God uh, in some way. So let, let me, the older that Gail and I get, I feel like giving becomes more attractive to us. And, and let me tell you a secret. To the people that are the most wonderful people in this context, if you scratch them a little bit on the surface, you'll find out that they bleed giving. Um, little secret, Reverend Janice, leading into her retirement this year, was more about giving to sanctuary than wanting more time for herself. Father Brent, taking a significant reduction in his salary this August, was to help keep the house Sanctuary in a balanced budget, not him wanting more freedom. All those who work part-time to run sanctuary services here, our band members, um, audio crew, all of them took a reduction in what we pay them this past spring as a gift to sanctuary. Other churches would pay them more for what they do here, and yet they stay. Please don't tell them that. There are several families in this church who carefully watch the bulletin and they see where we're at financially. When we start getting a little bit into the red, they step forward and have dropped significant funds, tens of thousands, um, into this church. Gail and I have been fortunate enough to have some retirement funds that we live off of. And we moved here on our dime. We don't get paid here at Sanctuary. We serve as volunteers like many of you. Why do we do these sorts of things? Because we've discovered there's a lot of joy and freedom in giving. <laughs> and we believe in a God who always arises to the needs that we can't seem to cover. And we don't live in a cloud of fear over money. We don't serve money. Truthfully, it's one of our best-kept secrets. <laughs> 